Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and as I always say, we're so glad to have all of you joining us uh, for our show. In just a few minutes, we're going to devote our time today uh, to looking at the significant strides that the state of Georgia is making to improve mental health services for people across the state. Um, This year has brought some uh, important uh, changes in how mental health services will be accessed, uh, presumably, uh, money going into mental health services, and a lot more. And we're going to talk about that extensively on the show uh, as we move forward. But because Tamar Hallerman, uh, AJC senior reporter, is my partner on Tuesday shows, and because, Tamar, you have been wired in to the special Fulton County, the, the Fulton County Special Grand Jury investigating the efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election, We don't want to let an opportunity go by uh, to ask you about the latest development, which is you have now reported that Congressman Jody Heiss has been served a subpoena, and he is working right now in federal court to block the subpoena. And he's doing it in a different way than Lindsey Graham, who we've talked about on this show. He's taking a different approach than Lindsey Graham is taking in South Carolina to fight the subpoena there. Tell us about all this. Yeah, it's a little bit out of necessity because unlike Lindsey Graham, Jody Heist is a Georgian. Um, so he's able to get subpoenaed, you know, directly from, you know, Fulton County, whereas to bring in somebody like Lindsey Graham or Rudy Giuliani, all these extra steps have to be, be taken. Uh, what's called a material witness certificate has to be sent to judges in, in the home states of folks like Lindsey Graham in South Carolina, Rudy Giuliani in New York. There's a whole process there. What Jody Heiss is trying to do here in Georgia is he's trying to move kind of his challenge to a federal court. He's arguing that because he's a member of Congress, which is a federal body, that is the proper jurisdiction. Um, and a, and it, it, the approach worked. A, a judge ruled that, yes, this, this will go to federal court. And there's a hearing I actually just saw uh, in the filings this morning. There's a hearing scheduled on Monday uh, where Jody Heiss will, will kind of move to quash his subpoena in the same way that Lindsey Graham is going to try and do in South Carolina in the days ahead. Uh, we didn't know he was subpoenaed, uh, uh, Congressman Jody Heiss. This happened in June. He was supposed to come in today. Um, that was not public knowledge until he um, tried to move this. So, so it's interesting to kind of see kind of the, the breadth of this special grand jury and kind of where this investigation has taken folks. Uh, I th- tell me if I'm wrong. But there is a similarity, although they're arguing on, arguing on different grounds. There is some similarity between the way uh, uh, both Jody Heiss and Lindsey Graham are trying to avoid the subpoenas to the extent that I think in both cases, this depends on whether uh, whatever activity they were involved with in talking about overturning the election or questioning the results of the election, if those were official duties of theirs as members of Congress, then they can't be asked about it. And that's a similarity between the two arguments they're making. And of course, the question is going to be, to what extent was at was Lindsey Graham asking uh, the Secretary of State to examine absentee ballots? To what extent was Jody Heiss in his role to try to uh, help the fake elector slate move forward? To what extent is that part of official duties of a senator or a U.S. congressman? Absolutely. We know that Lindsey Graham and we're also expecting Jody Heiss are going to cite some version of legislative immunity. And the Constitution protects that. There's a thing called the speech or debate clause that basically protects anything a lawmaker might be doing on the the House or Senate floor in their committees, kind of as they negotiate with other lawmakers and their aides. But it becomes really complicated once they start kind of moving outside the walls of Congress. 
and especially when we're talking about work on committees with really sprawling jurisdictions. When Lindsey Graham called Brad Raffensperger, he was chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, which has a massive jurisdiction. So he's making the argument that calling up secretaries of state in different places like Georgia, like Arizona, as uh, Lindsey Graham did, that that was part of the job. Uh, but there's a real question, especially if some folks, district attorneys and even a judge, interpret what they were doing as a potential crime. Uh, it's a fascinating story. The special grand jury continues to move forward in directions that are bringing it national attention. And obviously, we'll be watching it on Political Rewind in the weeks ahead. But I really do uh, want to turn our attention now to what's happening uh, with mental health services in the state of Georgia uh, on the show today. It, it is no secret that for many years, Georgia languished near the bottom in providing mental health services to the residents of this state um, in many categories. But in this past year, there have been these significant advances that are part of what we want to talk about today. And to do that, I'm very pleased to welcome Judy Fitzgerald, the commissioner of the Georgia Department of Behavioral Health and Development Disabilities, and Monica Johnson, director of the Division of Behavioral Health. And joining us uh, for this conversation is public policy reporter at GPB News, Riley Bunch, who covered uh, the legislative session and certainly was there when uh, the uh, legislature was debating uh, this uh, this massive landmark bipartisan bill uh, to uh, improve access to mental health care in the state of Georgia. So. Uh, I'd love to get started on this show. And um, Judy Fitzgerald, you're a commissioner. It's an important position, but you have told us that you're perfectly fine if we call you Judy on this show. And I know, Monica, in your role, you've said the same thing. So, Judy, let me start, and then certainly Riley and Tamara, I want you to jump in with questions. Um, but help us understand the scope of the department of behavioral health and developmental disabilities, Judy. Yeah, well, good morning, everyone. And again, thank you, Bill. We appreciate the opportunity to be here this morning uh, to talk about what really has become part of a statewide conversation uh, about mental health. So I have the privilege of serving as the commissioner of the Georgia Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities. And we are essentially Georgia's public safety net for people with mental illness, substance use disorders, and intellectual and developmental disabilities. And how we do our work in the state is we run five state hospitals uh, located in several locations throughout the state. And we also manage a network of over 700 community-based providers that operate all throughout the state. Um, and so, we have a public sector responsibility, which says that we are primar primarily responsible for individuals who are uninsured or receiving Medicaid and individuals who are at the highest level of need. Monica, um, there is no question that you have all labored long and hard in this field, which has been such a struggle in the state of Georgia. Um, it, you know how difficult it's been and, and how Georgia has ranked uh, in the bottom of mental health delivery services. Um, but, but you now see, I think, a very important chance to move forward, yes? Yes, absolutely. Good morning. I think that this is a wonderful opportunity that's been presented. Um, we saw bipartisan uh, legislators, legislation come through this year focused on mental health. We as a department have been spending the last decade building services for individuals um, that need our services, what the commissioner just outlined. And we're proud of that, but we're excited about where we are now and the future ahead. Monica, who are the people who are looking f for uh, you for help? Sure. So there's different kind of people. I'm going to put them in um, kind of two categories. So when I, whenever I get an opportunity to talk about mental health, I like to start from a place of wellness. So in some regards, we're talking about all of us. Um, our mental wellness state can change at the drop of a dime. And if the last couple of years have not tested that, I think I don't know what would. 
statistically speaking, one in five individuals in this country suffer from some form of a mental illness. That That is a pretty significant number, in my opinion. But we're here because we support the public safety net. And so the individuals that are most in need is who we support. And we're proud to do that. It's hard work. We have a provider network. You heard uh, Judy reference how many providers in our network. And these are people who have been working hard during the most unprecedented times to help support individuals with mental illness and substance abuse. So what what, uh, defines what it means to have a mental illness that requires your services? Yeah, that's a great question, Bill. So kind of two things, right? So for me, there's the official diagnosis. And so rather you suffer from a more chronic mental illness, a more serious persistent mental illness, such as schizophrenia, bipolar disorders of the sort. But then there's also the spectrum of anxiety, there's depression, Mm. there's situational grief and things that make you feel temporarily out of sorts, and you need support for that as well. So I want to talk about everybody on that continuum and leave no one out, because like I said, it could be one of us having the need for some support. I'm glad you said that. I think it's really important to understand uh, that that the wide of a variety of issues that you have to deal with. I do want to bring our journalists in uh, to the conversation. Riley, I, I want to start by talking first about this breakthrough bipartisan uh, law, now been signed into law, uh, uh, something that David Ralston has fought for for years. Anybody who listens to the show regularly knows Mary Margaret Oliver has been a champion of doing everything possible to improve mental health services. She couldn't be with us today because of a scheduling conflict, but we want to give uh, her and Todd Jones, her Republican counterpart who worked on this bill, uh, sponsored this bill. But Riley, uh, this was a, a major push that we don't see many bipartisan bills in the Georgia legislature uh, the way we used to. Yeah, of course, when we're talking about House Bill 1013, um, down the Mental um, Parity Act, And if I can put into perspective how significant this was in the legislature this year, you know, as you mentioned, Bill, it was pushed by House Speaker David Ralston. And very rarely do we see him even come to the floor to speak on bills, but he testified in committee to speak on this bill. It it was very personal for him. It was a huge push that he led and a bipartisan push as well, which was so big to see in such a divisive legislative session, right? You know, and I think it comes back to the point that we just made is that you would be hard-pressed to find someone that mental health doesn't touch in some way, right? And I would argue that you'd be hard-pressed to find someone that mental health doesn't touch personally even. So we saw legislators on both sides of the aisle come together on this. Um, and, and, you know, we it does a lot of things. That, um, I'm sure that our experts can speak more into the details, but the biggest is, you know, this um, – accountability of insurers um, covering mental health in the same way that they cover physical health. And I know we'll see a lot more to come because there are still some issues we need to work through this, but this was a huge, huge kind of flagship piece of legislation this session. Tamara, I think it's really worth pointing out that uh, David Ralston, in his support for this measure, uh, said, among other things, that law enforcement up his way, up in Blue Ridge, up in the North Georgia mountains, had talked to him for a long time about how many of the issues that they deal with uh, were among were people who uh, were violators of one sort or another because of their mental health issues. And that became um, a, a real important part of why he wanted to move forward on this. Yeah, of course. I mean, when people see something kind of going on in their neck of the woods and they don't know what's happening, they call 911. Uh, But sometimes you don't necessarily need like a man with a gun to show up at a door. Sometimes you need a trained mental health professional who can help somebody who's going, um, you know, through something. I remember a couple years ago, a situation in Atlanta where we had a veteran with PTSD and maybe schizophrenia who was running around naked in his apartment complex. He was having, you know, 
an episode and police shot him and killed him. And he clearly, that, that was not what he needed. He needed a trained professional to kind of help him. And so I think that was a huge component of it. You know, when kind of cops say, hey, you know, please kind of help us with this. This is not what we were, were trained to do in the academy. Um, so I totally agree, Bill. This was a huge kind of part of it. And I think it really helped prioritize this and make it more palatable to folks who, um, you know, might be a little more skeptical about spending that kind of money. So thank you for uh, reminding us of that awful DeKalb County uh, incident. Um, it, it's important in talking about looking for mental health services uh, instead of law enforcement services sometimes. Judy, help us understand what that bill that Governor Kemp signed into law the, what does it do that is most important to all of you in your department right now? Well, thanks. First thing, I want to make sure that I underscore that one thing, the whole, as, as Riley talked about, the process here was really part of what was unprecedented, this bipartisan support, getting everyone on the same page about something that's very real, for families and communities all around the state. No one is left unaffected. So I think one of the most important things that happened is we have changed the conversation about mental health in Georgia, and I don't think we're ever going back. There is, I think, widespread recognition that mental health is a critical part of overall health. So when we think about what's exciting, it's about changing the stigma about talking about mental health. So that's really positive. In terms of the bill itself and some of the impact that it had, I would say there are three areas to underscore. The first one, you've already mentioned mental health parity. Uh, and that calls insurers, if you cover physical health, you have to cover mental health uh, in a commensurate way. That's really positive. Uh, it'll be the first time we're tracking that in this state in a meaningful way. For us, a second area of impact is the workforce. And you're going to hear a lot about workforce in our conversation, which is everyone recognizing across the board. The healthcare workforce uh, is certainly, uh, we, we were behind a decade ago, but the pandemic really exposed how workforce shortages really impact the delivery of care. So we've made some critical both short-term and pipeline investments in workforce. And so we can't say enough about the momentum uh, that that is kicking off and how important that will be in the, work, in the uh, service delivery system of the future. And then the third element you've already pointed to here, Bill, which is really changing the dynamic between law enforcement and mental health service delivery. And there have been several programs that have been set up that our department and the provider communities that we work with will be responsible for really engage a different, engaging a different kind of partnership so that just how you've hinted at, when there is a mental health or addiction crisis, we're having the right responder respond. And that's really the opportunity that's ahead here is as quickly as possible to identify what the emergency is and to get the right kind of responder, meeting that Georgian who is in need of help. Monica, I'd love for you to weigh in on that because you're really right on the front lines of just that uh, aspect of all of this. Law enforcement as opposed to, say, social worker uh, uh, intervention in a crisis situation. Yeah, so thank you. Definitely agree on the points of if we can make those, the, the distinguishment right up front that this is a mental health issue, this is a mental health crisis, and then send the trained workforce to address that crisis, everybody will be happier in the end. Um, I think that I don't want to also lose the piece that workforce is important. I think competency within the workforce is important, and I think cultural competency is important. So even if you send out the you know, we're talking about 988 was referenced early, earlier, I'm sure we'll probably come back to that. But whoever is responding, that you understand the cultural differences that of the individuals that you're interfacing, and that's really important. Um, and if I can have a moment to go back to the parity issue, because I really want to talk about what that means for an individual listening. And so if I am seeking mental health issues, a, a mental health support or treatment, 
a lot of times people don't even know how, what their insurance covers. They don't know how to access those benefits until it is an emergency. And so just being able to get access to the right benefits is so critical, and that's why the parity was important. Well, well let me – I really need to follow up on that, though. Um, I understand that parity is important, uh, having insurance companies cover both mental and physical mm -hmm. uh, issues. But how does the measure um, help uh, uh, people understand where to turn? Because that's what you're talking about here, not necessarily waiting for the crisis to set in. Um, we're going to talk in a minute about 988, the new line that does allow people to call uh, for help in a crisis. But um, in other ways, how do people recognize where they turn when they're beginning to experience, for instance, in the pandemic? anxiety, depression, and the like? That's such a great question. And so it really depends on what you have access to, right? What's known to you and what's available to you. And it looks different for different places. Um, we already in the state of Georgia have a crisis and access line that is available 24-7, mm -hmm. 365 days for anyone that is experiencing a mental health crisis. So that already exists. But sometimes often you can talk to a friend. You can talk to a family member. This is before it's even at a crisis. So it really is about understanding how to normalize the language around describing what you're feeling. A lot of times we may use words that sound like we're having a physical problem. So we may say, I can't get rid of this headache. I have stomach pains. But those words are really also used to describe what anxiety feels like, what depression feels like. So the resources can look different depending on the person. There's no wrong door, and there's not only one answer to that as well. I have a question either for, for Judy and for Monica. I'm wondering if you guys can speak to kind of any specific challenges that, that you see in Georgia. Um, you know, is there, you know, is the urban rural divide that we talk about when it comes to healthcare, is that extremely pronounced when it comes to mental health care as well? Are there other kind of unique challenges that Georgia faces that's kind of contributed to us for so long being at the bottom of, of all of these rankings? Judy, why don't you start? Yeah, I'll be happy to start. Thanks for the question. So uh, when we look back uh, over the last decade, I, I can say a little bit about what Georgia has been focused on. So a little over a decade ago, the state of Georgia was sued, and we entered an agreement with the United States Department of Justice. What the lawsuit said at that time was that people with disabilities, whether they were mental illness or intellectual and developmental disabilities, were um, uh, being restricted to hospital care. And what that lawsuit challenged the state to do was to build up a community service delivery system. And since that time, year over year, actually uh, in the last decade, the state and, and really the leadership of the General Assembly has invested hundreds of millions of dollars into community-based care and has limited the ability to be served in hospital settings. Here's the good part about that. What we've done is really uh, through that uh, building over the, last, um, over the last decade, we have built a robust crisis service delivery system. Uh, in fact, it's more robust than most states. Uh, and so we can point to a lot of elements of that crisis system. And as we talk about 988, it will be important to do that. But there's another part of the conversation that I think people are seeing they want to get to, which is we've got to be operating on two tracks here, right? We want to have a robust crisis system. We want to meet those people where they're at the most difficult moment of their life or a member of their family's life. But what we also need to do is give equal attention to easy access to regular outpatient care. Make it simple in local communities on the ground to get the kind of help that you need to understand at the first sign what the challenge is. I do want to say uh, two barriers uh, in Georgia. I, you know, I think they're common everywhere, but they, it's important to say them here. Stigma is still the greatest barrier. 
Mm -hmm. uh, the, the difficulty of people acknowledging they're having a mental health or substance use challenge by far still represents the biggest challenge. Now that that conversation is changing, but this and the second challenge that we face truly is a workforce shortage um, that uh, again, we're excited about uh, building the pipeline of the future and some of the short-term steps that we've taken. But what we know, and certainly Speaker Ralston and other leaders have said, we are just getting started in making improvements. Riley, do you want to jump in with a question? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just following up exactly on what um, Judy was saying is this is a really big step, but these are systemic problems, right? And my question for Judy and Monica is, what do you hope to see next session to follow up on this? Because, you know, this bill was um, deemed as kind of a first step in addressing, are there specific things you want to see the legislature do? I hope we get an opportunity to build out the things that's in the law now and be able to learn from what is being built. Um, we want to be able to collect the data, understand the impact, and then be able to make continue progress in this direction. That's what I'd like to see. Uh, Judy, quick uh, uh, response before we have to get to our first break. Yeah. Um, so, of course, Monica pointed to that, that we're going to continue to follow the evidence, um, but we have a really, really close eye on increasing demand uh, all across the system. So that's a thing we'll be watching carefully and be happy to talk further about. And, and, and that's one of the questions after we come back at some point uh, uh, before the show is over, I want to talk about the potential for you to have a huge new demand, a surge in demand is pretty extraordinary. You already know that at the same time that you were trying to build out a workforce that's been depleted, among other things, by the pandemic. We should talk a little bit about that and a lot more, including the new 9-8 number, which debuted in Georgia just this past week. We're uh, talking about mental health in Georgia and we'll be back with more in just a minute. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. Uh, you know, Wednesday is our newsletter, Political Rewind Newsletter Days. Um, you can get our newsletter in your uh, email inbox sometime on Wednesday afternoons. Uh, we're all going to work on that right after the show today to prepare it for you. Um, I think if you listen to the show with any regularity, you know that my wife Janice and I are devoted, passionate followers of the Tour de France, which is underway right now. And I write about that. Uh, in tomorrow's newsletter. And if you want to know how that fits into politics, you'll just have to subscribe at gpb.org slash newsletters. We're joined today um, by a wonderful panel. Judy Fitzgerald is the commissioner of the Georgia Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities. Monica Johnson is the director of the Division of Behavioral Health. Tamar Hallerman senior AJC reporter, my Tuesday partner on the show, and GPB's Riley Bunch, who won, by the way, I should have said it, a really extraordinary honor yesterday. I don't remember exactly, but it's essentially something like a an award for the newcomer of the year. Is that is that what it's called, or do I have that language wrong, Riley? No, you're right. I think it's um, so nicely dubbed the Rising Star Award through the Atlanta Press Club, <laughs> yeah. and I'm very honored to get it yesterday. So thank you so much. Uh, Congratulations. That, that comes as absolutely no surprise to those of us who work with you at GPB uh, News, Riley. Congratulations uh, for th that. Um, I would like to quickly read something that, uh, Monica, I think you're quoted in this piece, Ellen Eldridge, who reports on health for us. I think it's you, and tell me if I'm wrong, who said, over the last 20 months, George has invested about $20.5 million in 988-related expenditures, money the Georgia General Assembly designated for additional crisis beds in high-need areas, 
uh, where you have the ability to ramp up quickly, staff, additional staff for callers who take those crisis calls, uh, and many other things. So first of all, what is the 988 number which debuted, I think, just this past Saturday? Yeah, so it's a moment in history is what it is. So 988 did debut this past Saturday. And essentially, anyone in the state, it's a law, anyone, it's a federal law, anyone in the, anyone in the country can dial 988 and they'll get connected to someone on the other end that can help the individual that is experiencing a mental health crisis, substance abuse crisis, or, or suicide. So the suicide prevention line is a national line. Georgia has been receiving lines, receiving calls, I'm sorry, from that line for some time now. We already have, I mentioned earlier, a pretty robust call center. So that gave us a little bit of a head start in terms of what we had to do. So that call center will allow people to not have to remember a longer 1-800 number. They can remember three digits and call 24 7 365 to get someone to answer to be on the other side to respond to them while they're experiencing their crisis and then as a result of whatever the situation is we'll respond accordingly that may look like a dispatch of a mobile crisis team a team of trained professionals to go out to respond to the crisis like we alluded to earlier um, instead of having to call 911 so it's exciting it's the start of a lot who come and it is like literally step one of many, many steps, but we're still excited. Um, and it's just, I think, real, it makes it realer um, to A, talk about mental health, and then when you asked earlier, Bill, so what do you do if you're experiencing a crisis? How easy is it to say, just pick up a phone and dial 988? I think it's great. Um, but it's going to require, uh, Tamar, as we've talked about already, a real staffing up. By, uh, by the department because these calls are going to come flooding in tomorrow. Yeah, and I'll be curious to see how you kind of, it, it's managed, obviously, you, uh, Monica mentioned this is a federal thing. I'll be curious to see how it's dispatched kind of, um, you know, on a state and local level. But I think it's a really cool new kind of historic step that we're seeing. And I can see little kids being taught about it, right, as you also are, are being taught, you know, dial 911 if you have a, you know, emergency, that's so cool that there's now a 988 that, that folks can call if they or their loved ones are, are dealing with any challenges on the mental health level. Judy? Yeah, so I'd be happy to say a little bit more about how we're preparing and what the totality of this means. As Monica mentioned, this was initiated by a federal law. So every state uh, in the country is grappling with this right now. And our robust crisis delivery system on the ground is helping Georgia's response. But here's a really neat thing for, I think, Georgians to understand. The rubric, the general way that we're going to talk about this is in three elements of what is needed for a crisis delivery system. So first, we're talking an awful lot about that 988 number. Uh, what we talk about that is someone to talk to. That's the call center. Equally important, Monica already uh, hinted at this, is if needed, someone to respond. That is literally mobile crisis. So I do want you to think about actual vans with licensed and trained professionals going to homes and communities where it's determined that help is needed on the ground. And then the third element is called a safe place to go. For some portion of people who are gonna reach out to the, that 988 hotline, we're going to determine they actually need to go somewhere in Georgia. So those crisis beds that we have spent years building all around the state have been a critical part of Georgia's response. So when we talk about workforce, I just wanna be clear, we need workforce in every one of those, answering those calls, heading out on mobile crisis, and then staffing the crisis units where people might receive some relief. Um, be, be, I know you want to jump in, Riley, but before that, I want to, and Judy or Monica, you you tell me which one of you wants to respond to this. Um, I get having crisis beds, the third uh, category you talked about, I think we understand that's for uh, people who really need some sort of um, ongoing uh, care in a facility. That second category is really interesting. 
you talk about mobile units going out. What sort of people, what sort of calls, I don't know, Monica, is this a best, better one for you? What sort of calls would get a mobile unit set out and what kind of people would show up at the house or the apartment or wherever? That's a great follow-up question. Most, most individuals that call in a crisis can be talked through and de-escalation can happen via the phone. So if you have the right person on the other side, most things can be de-escalated or triaged to where you can set up an appointment for a follow-up for maybe the next day to a provider. When mobile crisis is dispatched, there is a more urgent need that has been presented. It is believed that the individual um, that is being that is either making the call or whoever is making the call on behalf of that individual that there is a likely chance that if mobile crisis is not there, that the situation can escalate in a negative way. And so it's about safety. Um, that's going to kind of be the the first trigger to ignite such a response, but there is not an ability to de-escalate the crisis via the phone. So that's kind of the key way to think about for, think about it for me. Riley? Yeah, I think we've talked a lot about we're definitely going to need follow-up, right? We're going to need staffing. We're going to need access to these critical care services. I'm wondering, um, Judy, if you could give us any type of hard numbers of the increases that you're expecting. You know, how many more calls are we expecting? How many more dispatches, things like that? What do you need from the state going forward on this? Yeah, great, great question. Thanks. Uh, you've asked, and you've asked the $6 million question, right? What, what does the need look like? And we are watching very carefully. Here's one thing I can tell you we experienced during the pandemic was that, uh, you know, there was widespread reporting both about increases in mental health concerns, uh, people across the lifespan showing up in emergency departments with mental health issues, anxiety, depression, all of that, and also an increase in overdoses. So all of those uh, concerns really are funneling into the hotline. Throughout the course of the pandemic, essentially, we experienced a 24% increase in calls to what was our Georgia crisis and access line, calls, texts, and chats because there are several ways in. What we have since that, since sort of the height of the pandemic, we have continued to see this heightened demand. There were some early projections brought forward by uh, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. But I wanna add this point. Those projections essentially said that in Georgia, we might see a doubling of however many calls we received, we would expect that would double. And therefore the downstream effect is we might need double the mobile crisis response and double the number of crisis beds. I do wanna say this though, those original estimates were based on the plan to do widespread marketing of 988. There's actually been a little dialing back of that. And, and I think it's a rational response to states saying, we wanna be able to handle the demand. And so the focus right now is we certainly want to raise awareness about 988, but we're trying to prioritize high-risk populations who may, might be at greater need of emergency support. So the commitment that we are making to Georgians as we initiate this major transformation is we are going to be watching the data very closely. I've already seen the early reports of the weekend. We know that there was increased volume, uh, which we were prepared for over the weekend. But as we think about how to build the right response, we have to look at that hour by hour data. Where are people calling from? What do they need? And how can Georgia build a system that's responsive? Tamar? Are you muted, Tamar? We're, we uh, don't have your audio. Sorry about that. This question's for, for Monica or, or Judy. One of the provisions of Georgia's new mental health law is that there, there's really language in there to try and bolster your workforce and trying to kind of attract people. I believe there's loan forgiveness for, for student loans for folks who go into this field. And I'm wondering if you can talk about some of the challenges that you guys have experienced, particularly in recent years, in terms of recruiting folks to work in this space. I can only imagine how challenging you know, it is when you, you are talking to folks going through crises. Um, and talk about kind of how recruitment has been and how you think this bill might be able to help. 
So I saw I'll kick us off and then Judy will probably jump in. Um, so I definitely think that this has been a challenge and it, we, I keep trying to orient and remind myself that we are still in a pandemic. The work outside of that, so I used to work in these settings, and the work outside of that is very challenging. Um, it is not for the weak at heart. It is very difficult work to stay connected and to stay supported. And so there are some things, and, and the commissioner will probably touch on some of these that are that is in the bill specifically about ways in which we can improve the workforce. But I do want to say that what's important to me for the long haul is that we look at the importance. We talk about healthcare workers and we often forget the conversation about mental health care workers or behavioral health care workers and the impact that it takes on them and the toll um, to continue to do this work. Building a pipeline, I don't, I went through graduate school, I went through everything you're supposed to do in order to get to this work and nothing prepared me for this work, like doing the work. And so I think the <laughs> pipeline has to be looked at and that we're getting and attracting the right individuals um, to, to be committed and invested in this work. And in turn, we have to invest in those individuals. Judy? Yes, so if I could just add a few really important things that happened. The first and foremost was Governor Kemp's announcement about the $5,000 pay increase for state employees. I can't say enough about how important that was to the workforce. And I really wanna especially shout out the workforce in our state hospitals. So what an important, uh, both first and foremost retention tool for people who have toiled away in the most difficult circumstances. And now it really sets the stage for uh, recruiting going forward because one of the other biggest enhancements that DBHDD received was for um, increased pay for people working in our hospital system. And why this is so important is if we have shortages in our hospital system, every part of the system gets backed up. So making sure our beds in the hospital are operational frees up then community crisis beds. Ultimately, we always wanna serve people in the least restrictive environment as close to home as we can. So these investments that have been made in that frontline workforce are really, we think, uh, just such an exciting uh, opportunity to bring people into difficult but really rewarding jobs. Um, we've got to get to our final break of the show. We'll be back in just a moment. And, and if we can, with our um, experts, I'd love to just take a snapshot of the mental health, uh, uh, where we stand in terms of our mental health concerns in the state of Georgia today. We'll do that in a little more after these messages. Uh, Monica, Tamar Hellerman already asked what I thought was a really important question, and that is, do you, do you see a difference in the need for mental health services or different kinds of services in rural and urban uh, Georgia? And one of the uh, statistics that Natalie Mendenhall made available uh, before the show was uh, a story which reports that rural su suicides in Georgia have increased by over 8% uh, in, uh, in, in a, a, a relatively short period of time and that it's happening in minority communities and in rural Georgia. Can you speak to that? Sure. Yes. So those statistics, those statistics are, should be, get, should get your attention. Um, there is something happening in our rural communities and within our communities of farmers that need special attention and we need to be raising those conversations up. Um, the same is true in other uh underrepresented communities such as, I'll, I'll speak for black communities. Um, I, I had an alarming statistic I'll, I'll share here, and this is Georgia-specific data, and this is from 2019 to 2020. We saw a 10% increase in suicide deaths by blacks, while we saw a decrease by 9% in white communities. We know this, the, you know, the population differences between the two groups. So those numbers are a little bit telling. Um, and I'll give you one other one that was alarming to me. It's about opioid deaths in, deaths in the state. We saw an increase for that same time period of 67% in black communities 
and 48% in white community increases. So there are some things happening about in all of our different cultures, our different areas of the state, rather it's geography, rather it's race, rather it's gender, um, and other underrepresented groups. And so we got to be talking about not only the, the issues that we talked about today, but how do you reach these communities that have very specific, unique needs, and the cultural competency that I keep referencing is important. Um, and we got to, when we talk about having trained workforce, trained people with, with diverse backgrounds is really, really important. Well, and Tamar, again, you made that really clear when you talked about that tragic case uh, in DeKalb County where an African-American man uh, was having severe mental issues and law enforcement showed up and ended up shooting and killing him. And, and I think that it's really going to be important to watch tomorrow how uh, the, the, the black community and communities of color respond to a 988 number rather than calling 911 when they have an emergency. And we know, we, I think we know statistically tomorrow that, that black families or, or black individuals are less likely to call 911 in an emergency like that because they're fearful of, of the cops. Sure. And I mean, we have that instance from DeKalb County. I believe that was in 2015 or 2016. But remember, we've come out of this conversation about police brutality. Um, and, you know, that, that was kind of kicked into high gear because of George Floyd in 2020. And already there are many, many communities of color that are very skeptical or fearful of the cops. And so if this is a way to kind of get around that and so people can get the help that they need, and it could be a really big game changer. Um, Riley, weigh in on this. You know, I think that as we talk about different demographics, different races, different places people live, it is so important to tailor our response, as Monica said, to these communities. Um, she touched on one very quickly, which is actually something I've been working on with the Carter Center, which is farmers, right, and Georgia's farmers and suicide rates and substance abuse rates in, in that community, which is really hard. And I think a lot that reigns true for them, reigns true for um, rural areas, which is kind of a level of isolation. And I also want to bring up, if we think stigma is bad in urban and metro areas, it's 10 times worse in rural areas. So really oh. just tailoring the response to these communities is going to be the key in how successful this is. Judy, jump in, please. Yeah, we're touching on some really critical points, and we're really proud of some targeted efforts that our department has been able to do. Everything we do, we do in partnership with other folks, and we have had a, uh, a really meaningful conversation, particularly uh, actually in partnership with, with UGA on this one, uh, in rural and particularly agricultural communities. And you've already hit the, uh, the point right here, which is stigma is the number one issue, that that farming community has not wanted to raise their hand to say, this is a mental health issue. I'm concerned about my mental wellness. So here's what we've been able to do, because I think there are ways to use the data to make progress, is that we come in and we talk to the community and the families, and we match their language about wellness and financial well-being and overall well-being. And really, that walks us into a conversation about mental health. And that's been a real game changer in those local communities. Judy, let me, I, I want to just ask a, a, a kind of a logistical question about all of this. Um, you're describing a very broad array of services uh, that are going to be needed, continuing to, to be needed, but even more so when 988 really uh, uh, catches fire. Um, these are not all services of your own department, I assume. They're collaborative efforts with other agencies as well, yes? Yeah, such an important point. And we've made a point today to emphasize we're the public safety net, and that means we're prioritizing individuals who are uninsured and at the highest level of need. But our partnership with our sister agencies, the Department of Community Health, they're gonna be the ones in the Department of Insurance that really lean into this issue around parity. Uh, and what that does as they do that, that really lessens the impact of, uh, 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 for uninsured. Uh, and we can really focus on that population. 
Okay, but so Monica, where does say this mobile unit that's going to go out to respond to a crisis? I assume a domestic situation, for example, would be the possible uh, need for a, a mobile unit to go out. A husband and a wife uh, arguing, and it feels like it could escalate. One of them calls. Who's whose mobile unit is it? What agency are you working with on things like that? Yeah, so great logistical question. We contract with ZBHDD um, contracts with. Um, two providers um, that cover all 159 counties in the state. Um, and mobile crisis can be dispatched to a school. It can be dispatched to an emergency room, to a home, um, to a street, by the, uh, a restaurant. It can be anywhere. Um, and so, yeah, we do contract for that service, and um, it is exactly what it sounds like. It is a rapid response an individual experiencing a behavioral health crisis or a family experiencing a crisis, Judy. Judy? If I, yes, I could just add to that. One of our most important partners, specifically as we're talking about 988, has been 911. They've been with, with us at the table since the start because ultimately when there's a Georgian in need, we don't want that person to have to figure it out. So in many cases, behind the scenes, we are working with the local 911 to make sure, once again, that the right responder gets to that Georgian who's experiencing a crisis. So again, 988 is for a behavioral health crisis, and 911 folks have become familiar. That's a medical or safety uh, or fire emergency. So um, tomorrow we're just about out of time, but I, I want to turn to you real quickly at the end here to say that, um, as we said at the start, we've known for a long time that Georgia struggled with trying to find a way to provide services for mental health issues, and they've never been more important than they are as the pandemic continues. And, and it feels as though we're hearing the state maybe finally moving in the right direction. And Tamar, uh, Riley, we all cover stories that are really bad news an awful lot of the time, but this sounds like uh, a story that's heading us in the right direction tomorrow. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully it'll make a real difference to folks and, you know, not only just in rural communities, but in urban ones and everything in between. So it's a really exciting moment. That's it. Tamar Hallerman gets the last word. Riley Bunch, rising star. Uh, appreciate your being here. Monica Johnson and Judy Fitzgerald of the Department of Behavioral Health. Um, Terrific conversation. We appreciate your taking the time to be with us. We're totally out of time. Back to talking about political headlines tomorrow. Until then, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care. Stay healthy. Call 988 if you need to. Bye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>